0: I'm glad you can all be here. It is so good to see so many folks sitting in our pews, coming together to worship our Lord and our Creator, and if you didn't know it was happening, then you got surprised with also getting to join us in welcoming a new family member. Love birthdays. I love birthdays, Uh, whether it's an actual human that's actually joining us that day, or remembering the anniversary of that each year, or a new Christian, a new believer in Christ, one who's come up out of the water as that new creature, love birthdays, love celebrating life because we worship the God of life. And so each time we come around to these various birthdays, it reminds me of how good he is. and So I love it. We're going to look at, it's It works out that it happens to be part two of this weekend's seminar on social strife, uh, how to live for today without fear of tomorrow, and my sermon series from the beginning to the end. It fits perfect right where we happen to be. I consider that the Holy Spirit's working. That was a divine movement that lined it all up. A quick catch up, very brief, very brief. We've been looking at the book of Genesis beginning with Genesis 1:1. We went through all of chapter 1 and the various things that we learn about God and what he created and the order that he created it and what it says about the fact that God was just simply there in the beginning. Then we went on to the creation of mankind. We talked about how once man was created, we saw two things. One that it was very good. Because up until man's creation, God's uh, earth was only declared good. Then humans come along, those that were created in the image of God, and all of a sudden he could add, very good. But we also saw the opposite of that, because first man was created, and only man was created, and God said that it is not good that man should be alone. So only the very good for humanity can happen when we have man and woman as God designed, as God purposed, as God intended, and that the two of them would unite, and that would be the core basic structure for human society. Man, woman, marriage, family. It's the basic structure. We looked at the anthropology arithmetic. We saw that in order to make humans, God took inanimate stuff and he shaped it And that was fine and well. I'm sure it was very detailed, but it wasn't until he breathed the breath of life. The one plus the one could then we have a living being. And then we also saw that if man was alone, then it wasn't good. So in other words, we are not intended to be hyper individualistic creatures. Complete isolation is not for us. We are social by design. And so it's Shouldn't surprise us when we have severe negative consequences when we radically interrupt that. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. And and even for the introverted ones of us, I'm going to raise my hand, even for those of us that are a little more introverted, it's still good for us to interact with others and have even a small social circle or come to church or whatever the case may be. Do something outside of yourself. Think outside of yourself and interact with others. That's a good thing. And then we also saw that it was God's intention that the man and the woman would be united. Um, And that through that union, you would have the promulgation of humanity. That the one plus one can equal one, but it can also equal three and four and five and ten and fifteen, and now we're down to however many millions and billions. I think we're at eight billion currently on the planet, something like that. So in other words, that's, that's a really good math problem. I'm, I'm a big supporter of families. I think it's good to have kids. I love my three boys. Um, I, I think that was built into it. God wanted that. So we looked at all of that. The last time I was here, we, we went on into where the chapter and the story turns, though. We've had good, we've had very good, we've had here's your instructions, here's your, my design and my will for you, but then... But then a crafty serpent asked a question that had far-reaching implications. Did God actually say? Those four words are so heavy and so important because if you start with doubt and questioning the Word of God, what are the results? And we looked at some of those results. We're going to pick up after this now because where it fits into our weekend seminar, is something like this. Last night, we looked at three primary categories of social strife that at least I have observed and and researched and put together for our presentation. Those were the categories of, if we remember, racism and racial tensions, gender and sexual identity tensions right now, and then we also talked about political strife. We tried to keep a balanced approach to most of them, especially the third one, but we at least recognize that those three categories have manifested in real strife in our culture. We agreed that in years past or generations past, kind of like it was discussed in Sabbath school this morning, yeah, it was kind of there. People haven't always gotten perfectly along with each other. But it seems like the temperature has been turned up. It seems like the violence has been excused a little bit more. The rhetoric has gotten quite a bit more harsh and hateful. That the, if not the practice, the the interest or the expression of tolerating each other across the country, people are, are saying, well, it's not as important as it used to be to tolerate one another. Uh, We've recognized that families have been split because of these tensions, that fear can be a result of a lot of the strife that we've witnessed, fear for the future, fear for the younger generations, fear for eternity, or your finances, or whatever the case may happen to be. In the United States of America, we are really individualistic, we are, as a people, Um, it's, it's Kind of known, um, we bear it out. In fact, we are so individualistic that in a Western American church, kind of like ours, the the data points out that once you hit eighty percent capacity, the church needs to start either doing another service or a plant or a bigger building because Americans like their personal space. That's not true in traditionally Hispanic or Asian or black churches. They are much more comfortable kind of sitting closer to each other and sharing that personal space than the traditional American culture. And I saw that in a previous church of my own. We got to 85% capacity, and next thing we know, week in and week out, we'd see people come in, glance around, see that they actually had to sit next to someone, and they would leave. We're really individualistic. We are. We are also becoming more and more narcissistic. We are so consumed with thinking about me and I and not even us, not even we, not even any real kind of collective because if you disagree with the me or the I, then, well, we can forget the collective and I'll go over here and find someone else who supports me. We've started to compartmentalize ourselves into many, many, many different categories. The term for it is identity politics. The list grows. If you are uh, of European descent, and you are male, and you are Christian, and you are able-bodied, you can walk and use all of your limbs, you drive a Honda, and you live in Georgia, you're one type of person. If you're all of that, but you don't live in Georgia, you live in Tennessee, you're a different You have different, you can't, you're supposed to not be able to relate to one another where they diverge. The different identities diverge. And so what we have seen in our culture is that many of these identities have been pit against each other. We suggested that some of the strife is fabricated or encouraged or egged on. I happen to agree with that idea we see this idea of if all of what's on your list doesn't stack up with all of what's on somebody else's list, then we need to decide who's the better person. If you are this or that, you can either be the victim, the oppressor, the better off, the less than. We don't need to even hear your voice in some conversations, even though ostensibly we're a nation of free speech. Just be quiet. You can't relate to what we're going through because you're not exactly like me. We're very narcissistic. We think far too much of ourselves as if we were the only ones to consider. I would propose to you that not only does that miss the mark of our condition, it flips it on its head. It's 180 degrees opposed to the actual human condition. Because the human condition, though we have our different experiences, and it's wise to understand where the limits are in those experiences, we do have a very serious, severe, and common crisis that we all suffer through that's greater than any of those other differences. The common crisis is more important than the other differences. That common crisis we find in Genesis in chapter 3, as we've read a little bit of it. Let's review. If you have your Bibles already or not, open up if you like the pages. If not, swipe and thumb through until we're at Genesis chapter 3. The devil speaking through the serpent, being crafty and expressing doubt, came to the woman who had found herself by the tree that they weren't supposed to give a great deal of attention to. The servant asked that question in verse 1 at the end. Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Rather than seeing this as a challenge to God's love and authority, she decided to debate the beast. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, Don't eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden. Don't touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, Here we have our first lie. You shall not surely die. You're not going to die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The insinuation is God is unfair, unjust, unloving, He's the narcissistic, selfish, hyper-individualistic one. He's holding you back for something greater, something better, something good. When God said it is very good at the end of day six, he was lying to you is what the serpent's suggesting. Because even though you may have all of the plants and all of the fruit and all of the animals and all of the beauty and all of those things, oh, poor people. Poor, poor people. That cruel God kept something from you. So what did she do? The woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. They knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. We find our first indication of a common crisis. The common crisis that all humanity has is that through our greatest grandparents, Adam and Eve, through their disobedience to the Word of God, their questioning of Him, and by doing that, elevating themselves to above Him, They are now naked. They are naked. They are exposed to the elements. They are exposed now more so to the temptations of the devil. They are exposed to one another in ways that they had never thought of before. My goodness, she has faults. And he smells. They're naked to each other. They see perhaps a limp or a mar on the body or an attitude or what they thought would happen when the serpent lied to them and after they ate the fruit, that veneer was pulled back. They were naked. My friends, that hasn't changed since then. On our own, we don't have anything that clothes us with what God gave our original parents. We're naked to one another. We see each other's faults. We know our own faults. We are deceiving ourselves to think otherwise. We can't go through life keeping everything hidden. Many people try, but it seems like it always finds you out. More than that, we are naked to God. He can't look at you and have anything hidden from His piercing gaze. You're naked before God. He sees you for who you are. He sees what goes on in your mind and in your heart. You can do the right things, but He knows your intent. You're open to Him. No matter what you do, you can't hide yourself from Him. Many people have convinced themselves that they can through good works or through saying the right things or supporting what they believe to be the right causes, that that can, that that, maybe God will only see that. Maybe they will, maybe He will only see what I'm doing to serve His church and, and how I've prophesied in His name or how I've shown up early for every work be in Sabbath school. That's what God will look at and consider. Maybe you've been used by the Holy Spirit to cast down demons. Or had some other miracle happen in your life. Maybe you can claim a credit to something that can't be explained by any other human means. And when you stand before the bar of God and you try to list out all of that, what does Jesus say is the response? I never knew you. In other words, what he's saying is, I can see you for who you are. You can't cover it up. Don't raise your hand, but in your own thoughts, how many of us know who we are? Deep down, when no one's looking and the shades are drawn, when you think you've gone to the right city just far enough, when you've used I don't know, burner phones. I don't know if any one of us do that. Do You know who you are. God does. And then what do you try to do about it? And that, my friends, is a common crisis for all humanity. As mankind's representatives, what happened to them got passed on through the generations, and it's down to us. Let's continue. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day or in the evening, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now that their conscience, their guilt has gotten to them, they know they've done wrong. Remember, they're naked now. They know who they are. Maybe they deluded themselves in thinking God would overlook just, just this little bit of fruit. He'll just overlook this But when God came, they knew who they were. And now in their state, no longer did they welcome their Creator. What did they do? They hid. The common crisis for mankind, it's shared, is our first instinct is to hide from a holy and perfect God. We don't want to be looked at. We don't want to be exposed. We don't want to be found out, and we certainly don't want perfection peering into imperfection and dirty and awful. My dog, I love my dog. I love my dog especially after a bath. Because before the bath, as much as I love my dog, oh, I I really don't want to be around her. She smells. And she sheds too much hair. And it gets on my clothes, and then I carry that with me everywhere I go. I have little reminders. She's dirty. And that dirty, that smell, that hair, that that goes with her. I don't want any kind of contact with it. Sin has inversed that in that we don't want any contact with holiness and perfectness perfection. When sin stains you and sin makes you stink and and the violation of the Word of God corrupts you to the core, rather than my stinky smelly dog wanting to come to the human who's going to clean her and love on her and hug on her, when we stink with sin, we run from the only one who can clean us. We hide from him. That's our natural instinct. You will find, though, in the next verse, one of the most powerful three words that you'll read repeatedly in the Bible. In our our Bible, it's translated as four, it's three in the Hebrew. But the Lord God. You come across so many but God statements. It's awesome. What does God do here? But the Lord God called the man and said to him, where are you? God knew where they were. God knew their condition. But God sought them out. God sought them out. And what was the response? Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, who told you that you were naked? You shouldn't have known this about yourself. A change has occurred. And then he gets right to it. Have you eaten of that tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. The Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Our next common crisis that we find is under the control of sin, the spirit of self-justification rules. All humans are guilty of this. A fine quote from one of my favorite books. Quote, The spirit of self-justification originated in the father of lies. It was indulged by our first parents as soon as they yielded to the influence of Satan and has been exhibited by all the sons and daughters of Adam. Instead of humbly confessing their sins, they try to shield themselves by casting the blame upon others, upon circumstances or... God forbid, upon God Himself. Making even His blessings an occasion for murmuring against Him. Tell me that's not true today. When we do something wrong, when we know we're guilty of something, when, when, when we find ourselves in tough straits, do we more or less find a way out? rather than assume the responsibility and humbly confess. How many of us on our first first impulse would much rather blame circumstance, upbringing, genetics, emotions? Someone wronged me. We start to point fingers. My wife took the blankets all last night. I woke up cold. I've got a cramp in my neck. I'm tired. I'm hangry. And we think all of this list of, of things allows us to be mean and obstinate and rude and dismissive, and the list goes on. In sin, self-justification reigns because it's the opposite of what God would have us do. And that's a common crisis in humanity. Much of what has led to the strife that we talked about last night and we're referring to this morning, much of what has led to the strife is exactly this. I didn't get it my way. They're the enemy. They're the ones that have messed up. They've kept me down for so long. Sometimes it's a mysterious they. We don't really know who, just they. Sometimes there's names attached to it. But it seems that the minority are willing to stand up and go, you know what, life is rough for all, and much of my circumstances are a result of my choices, my decisions, my follow-through. Not many folk are willing to do that, certainly not in the first impulse. It usually has to come a little bit, and there's often pain associated with that. you got to swallow self-justification and pride in one, one giant pill that chokes you. you got to swallow it hard at times to get over that common crisis. The results of all of this, we're going to move on. The results of all of this, two more common crises, this one specifically to the man and then to the woman. First to the woman, we're jumping down to verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. We can have a side discussion about that, but this is an indication that men and women weren't going to be in the same harmony as first intended as first designed by God. There was going to be tension between the sexes as a result of this sin for all generations moving forward. There would also be, for all women moving forward, pain in childbearing. Ladies who have had kids, is there some discomfort and pain? That hasn't stopped, has it? It hasn't. For the men, it's only when they like really grip our hands and, and yell at us how much our fault it is. So it's, But the ladies go through that. That's, that's, that's for them. And here God is saying this is a direct result of. But the man wasn't going to be left out of it. In verse 17, to Adam he said, because you listened to the voice of your wife, which means you didn't listen to my voice, and you ate of the tree of which I commanded you, don't eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorn and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Three main things. One, success in life, or simply living life, was no longer going to be comfortable and come easy. You had to work hard. You had to sweat. You had to get blisters and calluses and and blood. And all of that is how you're going to get through life now because life is going to be hard. We do not have a right or a claim to an easy life. We don't. The people who desire it and think that they are owed it are wrong. And that's a common crisis for all humanity. We should all expect difficulty and praise God if there's a glimpse of something that's not difficult. Because the hard life is the expectation. That's a common crisis. Also, because of man, the ground was cursed because of him. The rest of God's creation was going to be cursed by sin because of what the man and the woman did. The common crisis is that it's not only inside of humanity, but we easily and obviously see it in nature. Plants die, things get diseased, animals kill each other. There are, there are other atrocities that happen in the weather and in nature. as a result of us, my friends. And then finally, that other common crisis is You'll return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. With very few exceptions. Every human that has ever lived has died. It's a reality. We don't have to be reminded of it. We all know. We've had loved ones. Perhaps we faced it ourselves. Friends. We read the news headlines of plane crashes and earthquakes and sometimes it's one or two, sometimes it's dozens, sometimes it's thousands. We all know that's a reality. That's a common crisis. No matter what advances we make in the medical field or in, I guess as they're trying, in the AI technology field, we are not immortal. We won't stay around forever. We have but these years that we walk this mortal plane. That's our window. And we all share that same window. But what's the common cure? Because remember, we have a common crisis. That's sin and its results. Let me just ask one more question. What does the Bible say for how many have sinned? All. What does all mean? Everybody. It means all. It's the most inclusive condition we can find. You want to talk about inclusivity? All have sinned. That's inclusivity. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Can't get away from it. It's you, it's me, it's our loved ones, it's everyone. All have sinned. But that also means that God is going to have a plan that's just as inclusive. Because what does he say even before he talks to the man and the woman? He talks to the serpent. And in that serpent we find our common cure. The Lord God said to the serpent, and we know that 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 includes the devil. Because you have done this, this is verse 14 of Genesis 3. Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So the animal itself, as an agent of Satan, was cursed. But then, more pointedly to the enemy of souls, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So one, the common cure is that from the beginning, God said, I will put a limit on what you can do controlling mankind. There's going to be a measure of grace, that enmity given to all of mankind so they can still respond to me. Everybody gets it. He is already granted you what you need to get started on your Christian journey. The faith of Jesus leads to a faith in Jesus. That's a common cure, my friends. Without that, we would be so depraved by sin, so run down, so distorted and perverted, we couldn't respond to a holy God. Ever. None of us would be sitting here. We would not have had a baptism. None of our children have any chance of learning of a Jesus who loves them. And that would have been true out the gate if not for the common cure of enmity between us and the devil. God said, I'm going to put a limit to you. and We need that. The other common cure is where he changes from Mankind writ large to a singular he. He's going to bruise your head and you're going to bruise his heel. Which is the more minor injury? The heel. You can have a twisted ankle. You can have a bug bite. You can poison ivy. You can stub your toe. You can do whatever to your foot, to your heel might not feel good, it might hurt, but it's minor. Most people recover from that. So devil, you're going to cause some pain to the important he that is coming. But what is he going to do to the serpent? He'll crush the head. If a head is crushed, is that a minor or a mortal injury? That's a fatal wound. That is a common cure because just like sin is all-inclusive, so is the fix. Just like the devil tempted our parents and got all of humanity into it, one man led to all of this sin. so one man, our second Adam, came, lived the life we should have, said the words we should have, lifted up our, his heavenly Father like we should have, died though that death not just physical but understand on the cross Christ went through the eternal separation from the father he could not see past the grave he experienced the death that a lost person would experience so he died the death that you and all you and i should have so that In placement of us, we get to live the life that only He deserves. It's a common cure. Do not think for a moment that what Jesus did, that this first prophecy of a Messiah was only for some elect, or for some special class, or for those who doesn't make sense, but maybe if you tithe 15%. Tithe is a tenth, you can't. But if you tithe 15%, that doesn't mean that you get a greater claim to what Jesus did. Jesus died wholly and completely, sufficiently for all, including those who will reject Him. Either knowingly or passively, those that reject Him. He died for them as well. It's a, it's a common cure, a completely inclusive Solution to the sin problem. And we saw some fruits of that played out right here today. We saw the demonstration of that, if you will, played out today. Because the New Testament tells us that it is in baptism that we enter into the death of Christ. And when we come up out of the water, we are entering into the resurrection of Christ. And the new creature, the new creation, the new life in Him. That played out right here. We got to see the profession of our common crisis and the solution, our common cure, today. If there's anything that we take away from this weekend, it's that God loved the world so much That he gave his only begotten son from me. And whosoever, common cure, whosoever believes in him can have eternal life. I'm going to invite David to come back up. Uh, We're going to finish this off. Because we have one more thing to do. And then we will have our closing prayer. I want to have the prayer with him while he's up here. Hope you don't mind. You were a perfect illustration for today. I used you a lot. Did you hear? Although I am going to say you called me a liar basically right out the gate. But I, I still forgive you. I love you. Because I said the water was perfect. He said it was cold. It is a joy uh, to have gone through what we went through today. I'm glad I could do it with you. We have one more item of business. He has expressed to me a desire, and you heard him say it into the microphone, to not just say he's a part of the church, but to actually be a part of the church. Here in this church, anyone I baptize knows up front that baptism includes joining the body of believers, represented by the institution of the church. That's here at the Ringgold Seventh-day Adventist Church for David. He has repeatedly shared that desire with me. He wants to be a member here. Being baptized here, you heard him. That hasn't changed. Okay, He's just. I was about to ask you, has that changed now from there to here? Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to all look this way. I want to entertain a motion to accept David Colwick into the membership of the Ringgold Seventh-day Adventist Church. We have it. Several. How about seconds? All right, all in favor. Now, for my non-members, do we welcome David into the family of Jesus Christ? Anybody and everybody. Amen. I actually have something for you, real quick. Inside the envelope is your baptism certificate, and then I like to give uh, a personalized Bible, um, just as a as a gift. I hope I got your name right. It's on there. All right. So now you can use you can use that Bible if you want, or you can keep the one that you've been marking up and using extensively. Well, yeah. But if you don't mind, do you, can, we, can you stand up here with me while we have our closing prayer? Alright, all right, let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we want to thank You for Your love and Your grace. We want to thank You for Your mercy shown towards us and we want to thank You for all of the people here that have professed a faith in You. And in a special way, we want to lift up David as he has joined now through baptism into Your, your people. Into your church, into your uh, into your family, Lord, we pray that you would continue to guide and direct him the remaining years of his life as he look forward uh, looks forward to your soon return. We know that this isn't the end for him. He's acknowledged that it's a part of his discipling journey, and we pray that he would be found a faithful disciple. Lord, we also would ask that you. Help us as we have studied and looked at Your Word. May we always remember that we are not islands, that we're in a sinful mess together, but we also have a Savior that will save all of us, whomever may turn to Him. Lord, I pray that Your Holy Spirit would bless each one of us, direct our minds heavenward, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.